Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. I'm joined by a very special guest, my idol, Mr. Howard Marks, the co-founder and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital. Mr. Marks is not only a renowned investor, but he is also a writer. Howard is known for his famous memos, which he posts on Oak Tree Capital's website, talking about various financial and economic topics, as well as publishing two books called The Most Important Thing in Mastering the Market Cycle. I'm excited, and I hope you guys are too. So without further ado, Mr. Marks, welcome, and thank you for joining the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Logan. So I'd like to talk to you about two subjects you are very respected in, which is market cycles and the concepts of risk. But before we jump into those topics, I would love to hear your story on how you got into finance and how did that eventually lead to the founding of Oak Tree Capital? Well, I'm sure that you speak with a lot of people who say that they started investing at 10 and, you know, invested their bar mitzvah money when they were 13 and so forth. That's not the case for me. Um, I developed my uh, interest in the business world uh, in the later years of high school uh, when I took a class in advanced accounting. Uh, My dad was an accountant and uh, the school offered the course. I took it. I found it fascinating. I really loved it. Signed up for Wharton uh, and uh, expected to be an accounting major. But when I got there, I uh, was introduced to finance and I found that more interesting. So I switched to finance. After uh, Wharton undergrad, I went straight to University of Chicago grad school. We, you went straight uh, to most grad schools in, in, that, in those days. And I, there I did study accounting and marketing for my MBA. Uh, I got out. I started at Citibank in the investment research department. I had had a summer job there and I enjoyed it. So that's where I ended up. Uh, up to that time, I hadn't made a decision to go into an investment career per se. And I applied for six different jobs in six different fields of finance and uh, ended up uh, in investment with Citi. Stayed there 16 years, switched to Trust Company in the West. Oh, I should say in 1978, I switched from research to uh, portfolio management. And uh, uh, I was lucky. I was asked to start the bank's activities in the new field of high yield bonds, uh, which turned out to be a very important field. And uh, as I say, uh, that was 78. I switched to Trust Company of the West in 85. And uh, uh, the four MDs who reported to me at TCW and I left in 95 to start Oak Tree. And uh, that, that's, uh, as they say, the rest is history. I've been, we, Oak Tree just had its 25th anniversary. Well, congratulations. So moving on, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, the creation of your memos. Obviously, your memos are very popular and are a must read among many finance professionals. And I wonder this, and I know a lot of my fellow peers have as well, which is how did you come up with the idea and what were your goals when writing them? Uh, I wrote the first memo in 1990 when I was at Trust Company of the West. And uh, I think the reason was simply because I had some experiences that I thought uh, clients would be interested in. So uh, I wrote them up. I sent out the memo to the clients who were probably uh, maybe a couple dozen in number. uh, And that was it. I don't remember having a grand plan. I thought it, of course, I thought clients might find it interesting. It might be good for business. Um, I think it's very important for a money manager to build a relationship with clients uh, so that they have a mutual understanding. If you have a mutual understanding, it's harder to get into trouble. If you, if, if you and the client agree about what it is you should do, all you have to do is do it and you'll stay out of trouble. I mean, you have to do it well, competently, uh, 
But, uh, you know, it, it's I, I think it must be hard to have a successful money management relationship with a client if you haven't established mutually what it is you're going to do. So and that doesn't extend only to what kind of securities you're going to buy, but but also what kind of approach you're going to follow. So there were two events that year for me. The first, I had dinner with a client and uh, the client explained to me it was a pension fund. Uh, and the guy explained to me that over the previous 14 years, the pension fund's result had always been between the 27th percentile and the 47th percentile of all pension fund results. In other words, they were solidly in the second quartile from the top, never in the first, but never below. If, if somebody said to you, I, I, I've, I've ranged from the 27th percentile to the 47th percentile, what percentile do you think they were in on average uh in between maybe the 37th percentile around there well that's a normal assumption the answer is they were in the fourth percentile so if you're if you're solidly in the second quartile for 14 years in a row how do you get to the fourth percentile for the whole 14 years and the answer is most people in the investment business shoot themselves in the foot and if you if you are have competent performance a little above average that is third quartile and never have a terrible year to pull you down you're going to end up near the top. Very few people can stay in the third in the third quartile for four, for 14 years. So that was an interesting uh, uh, thing to learn. And then um, I was back in New York, and there was a money manager that was having a particularly bad year. A deep value money manager who had a lot of money invested in the banks, and the banks did terribly that year. And so the the president of the firm came out and he said, "Well, you know, of course, if you want to be in the top five percent of money managers." You have to be willing to be in the bottom 5%. My reaction was, I, I don't care if I'm ever in the top 5% for a given year. And I certainly never want to be in the bottom 5%. So that was kind of the opposite approach. Shoot for the fences. Sometimes you miss and you strike out. I think the, the, the way to be successful in the investment business is not trying to hit home runs, but trying to get on base repeatedly and never striking out. So it was the juxtaposition of those two events that made me want to write the memo. And I did. And I called it the route to performance. And I think it was all of two pages. And uh, that was the first one in 1990. And I didn't do another one until the next year. And I did another one the next year. I don't think I wrote one in 92. I might have written two in 93. So the other, so obviously it, it didn't start off as a big deal. It was just something I did once a year or so. That's a great story. So. I want to move on to kind of what Oaktree does, which is distressed debt. Do you mind providing an intro to Oaktree Capital and what investments Oaktree focuses on specifically? So in 1978, as I say, I switched from research to money management. And I was asked to start two kinds of funds, convertible bonds and high yield bonds. Now, these were both obscure niches of the market that most people weren't interested in. And by the way, you get the best bargains in the niches other people don't follow. Because you can get an edge if you if you look in the areas that everybody knows about and follows and is comfortable with. It's hard to get an edge, an information edge. Um, but anyway, so I started those two activities in '78. That's what I went to TCW to do uh, in '85. In '86, I was joined by my partner Bruce Karsh, uh, and Bruce had the idea to to raise and run a distressed debt fund. By the way, our our High yield bond fund that Citibank in 78 was probably the first high yield bond fund from a mainstream financial institution. When Bruce and I started the first uh, TCW distressed debt fund in 88, it was probably the first distressed debt fund 
from a Mason institution. And one of the lessons of life is it's great to be first in line. Uh, you know, if you wait until there's a huge crowd, again, hard to get an advantage. If you're the first one or among the early ones to find a new market, it's possible, as I say before, you can get an edge. And so, you know, our our early distressed debt funds in, in large part had the market to ourselves. So so we started doing that in 88, in 93-4. We spun off three new strategies, four new strategies, international convertible bonds, busted convertible bonds, distressed debt for the explicit purpose of gaining control of the company, and distressed mortgages. So now we're up to seven strategies altogether and $7 billion under management. And that's when my partners and I decided to leave TCW and start Oak Tree. Oak Tree is what's called an it's, it's an international or global alternative investment manager with a strong emphasis on credit. So what does that mean? International or global, you know. Alternative investment means this is a new category. The words probably started to be applied about 20 years ago. It means everything other than mainstream stocks and bonds. Mainstream stocks and bonds are the, are the, are the norm in the investment world. So this is everything else, alternatives. The, the, the biggest alternative category is private equity, then hedge funds, then real estate, then private debt, then venture capital, distressed debt. All these areas add up to alternatives. And, and as I said, Oak Tree is a global alternative manager emphasizing credit. And credit means debt, bonds, notes, loans, things like that, but not government. So not treasury bonds and not the debts of foreign uh, countries, corporate and real estate related debt. That's what we do. And, you know, we're one of the larger firms dedicated exclusively uh, as such. By the way, we don't only do credit. We have other areas. We buy we buy real estate properties. We do do some private equity investing, some company investing. Um, and, and, and we do have some money in equities. That means stocks, uh, mostly in the emerging markets. But uh, most of what we do is off the beaten path. Got it. So I basically read a lot about distressed securities as well as what you guys do. And I want to clarify just a little bit of what you guys do, right? You guys invest capital into a company that has debt and then you buy their debt. And your hope, of course, is that you made the right decision, basically saying to yourselves, this company is in a bad, is not in a too bad of a situation. And you guys can anticipate that your investments will increase in value, reaping a greater return as a result. And I believe you guys also in return, uh, you guys also get maybe some equity in the company that you invested in. Is that correct? Well, I have to, I have to uh, amend what you said. We don't invest in companies. We invest in debt, the debt of companies. We don't buy their stocks. We, the companies are in bad shape. Uh, uh, some of, many of them go bankrupt. But and, and you might say, well, how can you invest in the debt of, of a company that goes bankrupt? And normally when you buy debt, you do so because, number one, you're going to get interest periodically. And number two, you're going to get repaid your principal when the when the thing matures. But if you have a bankrupt company or a distressed company, you don't expect to get your interest on schedule and you don't expect, expect to get repaid at maturity. So why do you buy it? The answer is that debt holders who don't get paid on schedule, get an, a, a, an interest in the value of the company. The company typically goes bankrupt. The old owners lose the company. They get wiped out. 
and the creditors become the new owners. So if we can figure out what the company is going to be worth at the end of this process, if we can figure out how it's going to be divided up among the different debt holders, then we know what we're going to get. And if we can figure out how long it's going to take to do the process, then we can figure out the rate of return. And if you, to get to figure out your rate of return, you have to know three things. What does it cost to get into the situation? What are you going to get out of it? How long will it take? And those three data points can be turned into a rate of return. And you can figure out what you're going to make and whether it's worth trying. So that's what we do. We, we do not expect the companies to, to make a comeback. Uh, sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. And as, as you say, when a company goes bankrupt and its uh, value goes over to the creditors, the unpaid creditors, sometimes we get ownership of the company since it's, the, what is the factor that made it go bankrupt? Usually it's at a low ebb, a cyclical low. And when you get ownership of a company based on the price at a cyclical low and it comes back, then then you do well. And let me clarify one thing, because I'm sure that it's a very complex topic and I'm sure that your your listeners don't necessarily understand this, but a company that goes bankrupt is not out of business. Company that goes bankrupt is not wiped out. What happens is they say, we can't pay our debts. We're insolvent. So there's a court process. And, and this is true for individuals as well as companies that go bankrupt. And under the auspices of the court, according to the law, the, your debt is wiped out and you get to convert your debt into equity given to the creditors. So the creditors get the value of the company. The company goes on through all of this. Continues in business. General Motors was business was bankrupt twelve years ago, and Chrysler. Uh, many many companies have been bankrupt. All it does is redo their capital structure. It doesn't put them out of business. So these companies go on, and as I say, if you get an, an if you get an interest in a continuing company at a low ebb of its cycle, sometimes those investments are very profitable. Got it. Great, but. I'm curious, how do you normally find distressed debt and how do you make decisions on when or how to, you know, determine whether it's a good buy and good buy meaning to buy their debt, of course? Well, um, as I said, um, all right, I don't think I said mostly we either see it in the papers or hear it on the street that at a given company is having problems and we start looking at their debt and studying it. The, the alternatives are sometimes we work with banks to ask them if they have any loans that are in trouble. Sometimes companies that need money that are in tough shape approach us about a rescue, about putting some money into the company or their investment bankers do. So there are three ways, main ways that we find out about it. And then, you know, how do we, how do we what do we do? We study it. I can't tell you in, in the time we have what we do or how we do it. But our job, as I said, is to figure out two things, mostly. What will this company be worth after it goes through bankruptcy? And how will that value be sliced up among the different creditors, debt holders? That's all you have to do. If you can do those two things right, then you can then you can figure out whether it's a profitable investment. Great. So I want to move on to present times, of course, the COVID-19 markets. So the first question I want to touch base on is, in your memo, Time for Thinking, you mentioned that the COVID-19 pandemic is not a market cycle. Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, if it's not a market cycle, then what is it? So do you mind going into depth as to why this pandemic isn't considered a cycle? 
Well, what I really meant was that it's not a an economic cycle, not a market cycle. But, you know, an economic cycle, usually what happens is that the, the economy is going along. It starts to gain strength. The companies do better. Everybody gets more optimistic. Eventually, the people who run the companies and their customers start making decisions that are too optimistic. The company builds too many factories, hires too many workers. The, 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 the citizens uh, uh, buy too much stuff. They spend too much of their income and their savings. They borrow too much money to buy more stuff and to make investments. And the whole, the whole process gets going too hot, too optimistic. When the optimistic judgments are not validated by events, when the company finds out that it built too many factories and doesn't have business for those factories or for the workers in them, and, and uh, that the companies are doing, aren't doing so well, then the, then the investors don't do so well. And the people start to experience losses. And the people who invested using borrowed money experience what we call levered losses or magnified losses. And then the economy starts weakening. And that's a cycle. So things go up. And then they start going up too fast and too far. And then they turn down. And then they go down. And then they go down too fast and too far. And then they start to come up through the process that I described of bankruptcy leading to uh, revitalization. So that's how cycles work. You know, I wrote a book about this uh, in 2018 called Mastering the Market Cycle. And if you read it, you'll understand, I think, the fundamental nature of cycles. Nothing goes in a straight line. Things go okay, then they go too good, then they turn down, then they go too bad. Then they come up and they go well again for a while, but then they start going too well and then too bad. So it's it's uh, it's it's extreme, extreme positive correction downward, extreme negative correction upward. So you should think of excesses and corrections. But you ask me why this isn't a, a, a normal cycle. So the, the that that pro- progression that I described to you, that's not what happened this time. What happened is we got a disease, and in order to fight the disease, they had to close down business to stop people from being in contact with each other, restaurants, movies, sports events, even some factories, some most stores, hotels, cruise ships, airlines. You know, so the point is business was artificially compressed, not because of the operation of a, of a normal economic cycle with excesses and corrections, but by the, by the authorities. So that I don't think it was a typical cycle. The typical cycle is, is solved by the Fed and the Treasury through what's called monetary and fiscal policy, this this problem will not be solved by monetary and fiscal policy. It it needs the vaccine. So it's a a scientific or physical problem. That's another way in which this is different from an ordinary cycle. Great. So I I guess that leads me to my next question is, right, with the positive announcements of the vaccine, which is 95% efficient, how soon do you think the economy will recover to pre-COVID levels? And do you think it will rebound much sooner now? Well, it, 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 I, I would say uh, that if, the, if there were no vaccine, the economy may never recover or never recover much and certainly not get back to, the, to where it was in 2019. But because of the vaccine, we will have a recovery because the arrival of the vaccine has been fairly prompt. Uh, it's not in the distant, distant future. But when do you think the, the vaccine will be generally available. You know, we need something like 70% inoculation to have herd immunity. 
When will we beat to 70% in your opinion? From what I've heard and what I believe, I would think probably late 2021, possibly mid, maybe August, August, September-ish. Well, I think that's a good guess. My own personal guess has been um, third quarter, which means July, August, September. I may be too pessimistic. Optimists think second quarter, April, May, June. But I don't think it's going to be before that. Be before that. Uh, I think it's going to take at least until the second quarter until we have hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine, which is what it's going to take. We have 340 million people. Let's say two thirds want the, want the vaccine. Uh, that's uh, 225. And, you know, and oh, and by the way, it takes two doses of, of the vaccines we have so far. So that's 450 million doses. I think it's going to take that long, uh, at least until the second quarter. Uh, to get that many doses into circulation and into arms. I, I heard an intelligent person the other day who said vaccines don't solve the problem. Vaccinations solve the problem. Just having a vaccine is not enough. You have to actually get it into people's bodies. Now, think about this. Let's say you, you operate a center and they inoculate a thousand people a day. To, in order to get, deliver 450 million doses, you have to have 450,000 inoculation days. So if you have 450 centers, each one has to operate for a thousand days. If you have a thousand centers, each one has to operate for 450 days. So it's, it's a big job. Got it. Uh, so I guess what I've seen on the news recently is COVID cases are surging again, right? Let's say in LA as well as New York, but again, in the U S the stock market is at record highs right now. And I was wondering, can you explain this disconnect? And do you think the markets are currently overvalued? Well, it is it is a big disconnect, um, and uh, everybody wonders how if the, if we're doing so badly with the vaccine, and if the economy is still uh, down from the 2019 level, how can the stock market be making new highs? Great question, uh, Logan. And uh, the answer is that investors focus the thing they care about is variable. Sometimes they care about what's going on now, but in this case. They're looking into the future. I call it looking across the valley. And they're happy to think about how we'll be doing a year from now when we do have herd immunity, when the vaccine is back to control, is under control, and we're somewhat back to normal. So investors are focusing on the future and ignoring the short-term pain, which certainly lies ahead for the next few months. You know, uh, Dr. Fauci and, and so forth think that the worst is ahead of us, not behind us. But still, people, investors are, are willing to look past that. Um, and uh, so that's number one. And number two, um, the Fed reduced interest rates to zero. And everything that goes on in the financial world is enormously responsive to changes in interest rates it, for a number of reasons. Uh, a couple of years ago, at, in the fourth quarter of 2018, exactly two years ago, the interest rate paid by the 10-year treasury bond got up to three and a quarter percent. And when the interest rate on the treasury bond gets up to three and a quarter, then everything else has to yield more to attract uh, capital. Nobody's going to buy high-grade high bonds if they don't pay four and a half. Nobody's going to buy high-yield bonds if they don't pay seven and a half. Nobody's going to buy stocks unless they cheapen so that they're competitive with bonds. See, everything is interrelated by, by, on the basis of relative judgments. So um, 
when the interest rate on treasuries goes up, the, the return, the prospective return on everything else has to go up commensurately. And the, the main way that return, that prospective returns go up is that asset prices go down. The higher interest rates are, the less most assets are worth. But in this case, the, the interest rate was zeroed out. And the lower interest rates are, the higher asset prices go because the less they have to return. So, uh, so the, the, the Fed's a- and, and the Fed took other actions. For example, the Fed is buying bonds. And when the Fed buys bonds from Americans, it gives them cash for their bonds. Then the people have to reinvest that money. That creates demand for securities, which makes prices go up, et cetera. So, and, and, and there are many, many other impacts of, of uh, interest rates that I don't want to go into uh, unless you really insist. But the point is that, that the, re- the reduction of interest rates has had a profound effect on asset values throughout all the markets. That's why um, the markets have been so strong, in my opinion. Got it. But I, I think something that I'm I was curious about re- relating to the stock market is what's the effect of overpriced stocks on investors right now during this pandemic? Do you think it's bad, good? Well, first of all, I didn't say that the securities are are, are uh, overpriced. They're probably fully priced based on today's low interest rates. And if interest rates stay low, then then the market is probably okay. The main exposure is that if interest rates go up, then prices have to go down to to make the the uh, prospective re- returns rise in competition with interest rates. So so the market is uh, full, but not demonstrably overpriced as long as interest rates stay down, which I think is going to be for some years. Got it. So now I want to kind of jump into a little bit about risk. And in your memos, interviews, and books, you stress that the two most important types of risk to look out for is permanent capital loss, which is losing money, and missing out on opportunities, such as you see a company, you like it a lot, you have enough money to invest, but instead you become risk averse. And as a result, you missed out on an opportunity and possibly one that could have yielded high returns. So I guess my question is, should a typical investor be more worried about losing money or missing out on an opportunity during COVID times? Well, I think you have to worry about both. Did you say in COVID times? Yes. Well, uh, well, I think if you're really worried about COVID and the future, uh, uh, then, then you should be more worried about losing money. I mean, the point is nobody ever died from, from, from uh, missing out on opportunities. Financial losses can kill you. So, so, I think that most people should make sure that they have a good dose of defense in their holdings. You know, if you invest aggressively at the wrong time, you can get wiped out. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite sayings is never forget the man who was six feet tall, who drowned crossing the stream that was five feet deep on average. The concept of surviving on average is not sufficient. You have to survive every day, which means you have to survive on the bad days in particular. And if your portfolio is too aggressive for you. Now, when I say too aggressive, what I really mean is there are a lot of people who use borrowed money to amp up their returns. That's called leverage or margin. And if you use leverage, it, 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 it amplifies your returns, but it also amplifies the difficulty that you suffer in on a bad day. And if you use margin and you get a sufficiently bad day, you get wiped out. And once you get wiped out, you never come back. So I think that, uh, you know, I think that 
most people should, unless they really are profound risk takers, they should worry and they should certainly not use margin and they should know the, about the things they're investing in. Most people don't. They take a shot. You know, they say, I hear Tesla's been doing great. I'm going to jump in on Tesla. And Tesla might be overpriced and they may get into trouble. So most people don't know about the things they invest in. They don't know much. Now, if you want to outperform the market with regard to the things you're investing in, you have to know more than the average person. But most people don't know anything or very little. That's dangerous. So I think that... Uh, now, young people like yourself, you have lots of years ahead of you. So if you make a, a little mistake this year, screw up, you have uh, probably 70 years ahead of you to recover. But the older you are, the less time you have to recover. Uh, but uh, so I think that you that I think that investors have to balance the risk of losing money against the risk of missing opportunity. But I think that for most people, uh, uh, the the risk of, of losing money is more uh, hurtful than the risk of missing opportunity. Great. I did see a very funny reference you made at the UCLA Anderson talk where you mentioned you should live longer so you can experience the markets and then you could basically determine the opportunities you miss out on and then pretty much experience markets. But. Yeah. Um, so in 2019, you did an interview with Yahoo Finance mentioning that there are two ways to attack the markets when you invest in, let's say, stocks, bonds, ETFs, any, anything really, which are you can invest aggressively or defensively. From what you witnessed through this pandemic, which strategy do you prefer, prefer at this very moment? Well, it's the same thing. Investing aggressively means making sure you don't miss any opportunities. Investing defensively means making sure you don't lose money. So that's why you have to balance offense and defense because you want to balance those two risks. Uh, at the present time, I think uh, I think it's desirable to be in the market, but to do so with a good, healthy dose of defensiveness. I, think, I don't think this is the time to be aggressive. Uh, I mean, everything's highly valued. Everything is valued on the assumptions that interest rates will stay low. Uh, they may stay low or they may not. But I don't think they're going lower since they're at zero. Now, some of the countries of the world are in negative interest rates. I don't think the U.S. is going to go to negative interest rates. And if that's true, then that means interest rates aren't going any lower since they're at zero. So uh, I don't I don't I don't worry about missing out on short term opportunities. I, I think it's worth you can you if you're if you're sensitive to ups and downs you would have to worry about losing money. Now, you don't have to be sensitive to ups and downs. If you have a strong stomach, and if you're not using borrowed money, and if you're you're comfortable and you don't need the money you're investing, then you can leave it in the market and you can suffer the ups and downs and you can live with it. The worst thing is that most people, they, they, they say, it's OK, I'm a long term investor. I can live with the fluctuations. But when they get hit with a 30 percent decline, then they panic and sell. And if you panic and sell at the bottom, then you don't enjoy the recovery, which is inevitable. So I think that uh, the inability to, I think that taking on more volatility than you can live with is a fatal mistake. And that's why when the market is fully valued, as I think it is, that's why uh, and thus precarious. That's why you shouldn't uh, be in aggressive mode. 
Got it. Now, in your 2015 memo, you uh, risk revisit again. You mentioned that there are 24 types of risk, and rather than addressing the question of how do you manage all of these risks, I believe the real question then becomes, can you manage them all? And I'm curious, how much harder is it to track and control these risks now, especially during COVID? Do you uh, prioritize a few over you know others? Let me say, I didn't say there are 24. I listed 24. There are probably more. And some of the ones I listed were facetious. Uh, so don't get hung up on the number. And you're right. You can't measure them all. You can't, you, can't, you can't solve them all. You have to prioritize. I think by far the biggest risk is the risk of losing money. Now, that's permanent loss of money. That's not a, a downward fluctuation. A downward fluctuation usually recovers, and that's not a loss. I'm talking about the permanent loss of capital, which is to say you invest in a company or you're an owner and it goes bankrupt. You never recover that money. You, you invest in a, a, in a property, in a scheme, which is using borrowed money and you have a decline. So they get, you get wiped out at the bottom. You never recover that. So I think that the, 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 per, the risk of permanent loss of capital is the biggest risk. In the long run, I mean, for a guy like you, Logan, you have 70 years ahead as an investor. If you don't invest now, you you suffer a high probability of losing money over your lifetime that you otherwise could have made. We call that opportunity cost. When you when you sacrifice money that you could have made, we call that opportunity cost. And that's very serious for a guy like you. So what I would say is invest now. Don't worry about the fact that the COVID uh, present or, or the level of the market presents uh, risks. Invest in a in a moderate portfolio. Make sure it has a good as a good level of defense that, that it's not too aggressive. That you'll be able to hold for the long term. For a guy your age, the biggest risk is not investing. The second biggest risk is investing so aggressively that you can't hold through. But but you know we we talk in our business about something called compounding, which is you put in money today. You make some money this year. Next year, you have more money working for you. You make more money next year. Then you have more money working for you and you make more money than next year. For example, a dollar or let's say 100 bucks to make it easy, invested at 10% with compounding goes like this, 100, 110. Now, the next year, you have $110 invested. You make 10% on that. You make 11. So you're at 121. Then you have 121 invested. You make 10% on that. That's 12. You're at 133. So you, if, so if you go up 10% a year with compounding, you don't go 100, 110, 120, 130, 140. You go 100, 111, 10, 121, 133, 146. You see, you have a curve that it doesn't go up in a straight line. It goes up in an accelerating line. And, and, and uh, if you can invest at, let's say, 6%, then your money doubles every 12 years and you have 70 years to go. So you have six 12s ahead of you. If you put in $100 this year and you and you grow it at 6%, which is not a huge challenge, it's easy to make 6% on average. Stock market goes up about 9% on average. If you can make six a year on average for, for 72 years, your money goes like this, 100, 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200, 6400, 12800. So you get you go from $100 to 12800. If you just make 6% a year after taxes for 72 years. So obviously, if you invest this year, what's the most you can lose? 
100. If you fail to invest this year or fail to invest, you could lose 12,000. So that tells you that for a guy your age who, who's smart enough to put together a balanced portfolio that's not so aggressive that you can get wiped out in bad times, you're risking $12,000 if you don't invest and $100 if you do. Which would you rather do? I would probably want to make more money and not lose all that, so a lot of capital. So the, so the most important thing, well, there are two things about import, investing that are important. Number one, start early and hold throughout. And number two, have a portfolio which is not so aggressive that you get wiped out. And the, the main way people get wiped out is that they they endure a loss. And, and by the way, during that those 72 years, you're going to have some downward fluctuations. But if you get spooked and sell, then you stop the compounding process. And that's that's the cardinal mistake. Got it. So the last two questions that I want to touch base on was going back to Fed and I was going back to the Feds and I was wondering, do you currently have any concerns of inflation given large money printing by the Fed and government deficits? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, uh, we don't know. I mean, if you ask most people, you say this, the Fed borrowed $2 trillion, expanded its balance sheet by $2 trillion in order to buy bonds this year. The Treasury expanded the deficit by more than $2 trillion in order to in- inject money into the economy. So 4 to $5 trillion of expansion of, of liquidity in the economy. What's the impact? And the answer is nobody knows. The Fed, number one, says it had to do it in order to support the economy while it was shut down during pandemic. They had to replace workers' wages and businesses' revenues in order to keep the economy from collapsing. But they don't know the long-term impact, and they say they're not worried. Whether they're worried or not, they still had to do it. But many of us do worry about the impact, although we can't be too confident that we know what it'll be. But the normal impact is what you said, which is that if the Government prints a lot of money. That's what we call it when they when the Fed expands its balance sheet and the Treasury runs deficits. If the if the if the government prints a lot of money, that's normally inflationary. On the other hand, over the last fifteen or so years, many economies have been trying to have a little inflation because it makes easier to makes it easier to, to manage an economy, and and they haven't been able to do it. So, will we have inflationary inflation, or are we living in truly deflationary or disinflationary times? Nobody can say. Economy economics is not a precise science. It's called the dismal science. It doesn't operate under absolute rules. We think we understand what makes an economy work. A lot of it is behavioral and psychological, but uh, but we nobody certainly knows. And uh, I I do worry about the long term impact of what the Fed and Treasury are doing. But uh, there's not there's nothing we can do about it. So you could pretty much say it's unexpected, as you know. What I think most of the most of what very very like famous investors say is you can't really predict what comes tomorrow. You can only know what's happening today. So, however, having said that, if you if you look at my 2018 book, Mastering the Market Cycle, the the subtitle of the book is Getting the Odds on Your Side. While we never know what's going to happen in the future, and I think this is worth reading if you have a chance. It's a, it's a little deep, but, but I, I think not too deep. If you, it, since you don't know what's going to happen, uh, you can't say, but you can know whether the odds are in your favor or not. When the market is high in its cycle and the economic expansion is old, then things are risky. When prices are full, 
if the market is low in its cycle and prices are low and the, the, uh, the economic rise is just beginning, then the odds are in your favor. So you can know, I think, you can have a sense for when the odds are in your favor and when they're against you. And you can be more aggressive and less aggressive. But most people, you know, but you have to be a professional to do that. Most people should just buy and hold. Great. Now, the last question that I want to ask you today was, how has your investment strategy changed from the beginning of COVID to present day? No, at, at the beginning of COVID, the markets were melting down. Uh, people were under pressure. Uh, stocks were collapsing. Um, bonds were collapsing. Uh, people were selling urgently. Prices were low. We were aggressive. When the Fed and the Treasury took the actions they took and caused the markets to recover, they gave everybody confidence. Now nobody's afraid. Now, now securities are rising in price. Nobody's eager to sell. There's no fear. Matter of fact, I, I say that FOMO, or the fear of missing out, has taken over from the fear of losing money. Most people are worried about the risk of missing opportunity, not the risk of losing money. And when that's trouble, when that's the case, when nobody's pessimistic, then nobody's eager to sell. Prices are firm. That's when the odds are not in your favor. So that's why we are uh, we we have a we're we're still buying and we're almost we're practically fully invested, but we're applying some caution. Great, Mr. Marks. Thank you for uh, joining the podcast. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Logan. It's uh, it's uh, uh, you had great questions, and it's a little daunting to hear them your hero because that puts me a lot of pressure on me. But I hope I did okay. Of course, you did. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen in on today's talk. I hope you guys learned a lot and thank you for joining. Take care and stay safe.